This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 10th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The patent system has become unmanageable, turning a system of protecting intellectual property to one where so-called patent trolls can lie in wait to sue productive companies over the right to use certain recipes for innovation. Eli Dorado is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center. He's the author of the lead essay in this month's Cato Unbound. I think that there's a, a important semantic issue that uh, that dominates the discussions of intellectual property in the libertarian community, which is, you know, is intellectual property property? Is it regulation? Is it a monopoly? And I, th- I think that those are, are just semantic issues. I don't think that there's any substance um, behind them. And so I kind of want to avoid that question and just discuss the ways that actual property um, actually has real contours, has real limits um, that we that we all understand and approve of. So in, in 1946, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that uh, you know your real property, your land, your your property right to it doesn't doesn't um, extend infinitely high, you know. So so you don't get it all the way to the highest heavens, and that was necessary. That the abridgment of, of that property right was necessary so that we could have air travel. And that was an overriding consideration, uh, despite the fact that there was this age old common law doctrine that said that you did own it that high. So uh, limits to property rights, I think, are fine in, in the libertarian tradition. We don't want to have infinitely strong property rights all the time. And so the question is, do we have uh, institutions that define the limits of property, including intellectual property, in a way that makes sense and that is, is good? Okay. So with respect specifically to patents, um, how long do they last and what is the public rationale for having them? So patents last for 20 years. They, the rationale is, is similar to other property. You want to, you know, innovation might be undersupplied otherwise, um, just as automobile maintenance would be undersupplied if you didn't own your automobile. Um, and you want to incentivize that. You want to internalize the, the social benefit of that innovation by giving someone an exclusive right to their invention uh, for, for a period, short period. Now, you, uh, in your essay, talk about the explosion in patent applications and patent grants, and that breaking point was in the early 1980s. What happened then? Uh, so in the, in the early 1980s, the patent bar successfully lobbied Congress to consolidate appellate review of all patent trials in a single circuit court. It's called the Federal Circuit, and they um, were able to to create this single court that they were then able to effectively um, monitor or, or um, cre- they were able to create a, a bias in the court um, to uh, to be very you know in favor of very strong patent laws. So part of it is just that it was it's the it's the patent bar and the specialized patent judges and they're able to sort of take their own purposes for granted and be insular, and uh, and, and sort of just accept that that the patent system is important and that it should always be stronger. And part of it is also they were able to monitor the appointments, the judicial appointments, and just there's only 12 seats on this court and they were able to sort of. Make sure that everybody that's appointed to it has uh, is filtered for for very strong patent views. You talk about 
this difference, and Tim Lee has talked about this a little bit as well, which is essentially the difference between a, a patent on a chemical and a patent on a piece of software. Sure. Uh, there's a big difference. So, so most importantly with a chemical, um, there's an easy way to, to search for whether the chemical uh, is patented. So, so if you, there's a standardized way of describing the chemical. Uh, using a using a, a standardized formula, and so if I come across a new molecule that I that I invented or that I discovered, and I want to uh, see if it's patented, I can quickly, no matter how many patents there are in the system, I can quickly look at the system and see, you know, is this already patented or not. With software, there's a huge problem of description. It's very hard to know if a new invention uh, has been patented already in software. There's a thought experiment here that that uh, isn't very far from reality, and that is you're a small Silicon Valley firm that has created something new, and because of what you say, that is it's not indexable, mm -hmm. uh, that you can't be sure without devoting a great deal of uh, time and energy and treasure to the effort of discovering whether or not this thing you think you've created was something you in fact created. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So, so I mean, Tim Lee and and Christina Mulligan have estimated that it would take more uh, attorney manpower than exists uh, in the country to to be sure that you haven't um, that you haven't uh, infringed. So, what ends up happening is that companies in Silicon Valley say to their invent to their engineers, don't even do a patent search. Because if you do a patent search, then you're opening us up to treble damages. You can pay; it's willful infringement, and we have to pay three times as much. So they're not even doing trying to do patent clearances because it's you know it, the system is just so broken that they that they don't want to do it. So there's a lot of gunk in the system in terms of defining uh, property rights within this realm in a rational way. Yeah. So what do you recommend as a basic step to sort of clear out the the cruft of the system? Well, I think that there's there's really three things. So one is that we need to return patent appeals to uh, to all of the circuit courts. So there's proposals to maybe have them share uh, jurisdiction with the other other circuit courts. But I think just you know getting rid of the federal circuit, going back to the pre-1982 system, where you just, if you have a trial, you appear to appeal to your local circuit court. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, the other uh, really important step would just be for Congress to just say, you know, maybe some of these, some of these subject matter areas, um, like software, like business methods, uh, just they're not, they're not patentable subject matter. Just say it in the statute. And New Zealand has done this with with software, and they they've actually had to say software is not an invention. Uh, in order to get around WTO obligations. What has the Supreme Court said about the way that the patent bar and the way the Federal Circuit has dealt with patents in the past? It seems like they're uh, at least somewhat hostile to the way in which they've been dealing with this issue. I think they're pretty exasperated by by the Federal Circuit. Um, it's an open joke in in the Supreme Court about how the Federal Circuit doesn't listen to the to the uh, Supreme Court, and recent rulings have have tended to um, to scale back the sort of the Federal Circuit's jurisprudence. 
Um, but there's limits to that. The, the the Supreme Court, you know, has other jobs besides monitoring the federal circuit, so they can't they can't do it all the way. Uh, most recently, there was the Alice versus CLS case, which um, which established uh, that the fact that you if you have an abstract series of steps that isn't patentable, like such as a software algor algorithm, and then you say we're going to run it on a computer. Uh, the fact that you're running it on a computer doesn't make it patentable, right? So, so under previous uh, jurisprudence, that had been patentable, but but now the Supreme Court's saying no, and it's still not clear what, how many software patents it's going to invalidate, but it could be could be a lot. Um, I think the last thing that's really important is for Congress to to do something about the troll problem, because even if we've invalidated a bunch of software patents, they're still sort of out there in the system, and it makes it difficult for companies to um, be safe from uh, sort of predatory uh, entities that, that use, use asymmetries in the legal system to target them. Now, let's be clear what a patent troll is and what it is not. It's not someone who has created something or has purchased a patent for the purposes of exploiting it through production. Right. It's somebody who's, who's using a patent as a springboard to attack someone who is... Well, possibly infringing. Yeah. So, so I think that the secondary market in patents is totally legitimate. So, so if I have a patent and and it's a it's a good patent, um, in the sense that it's it's a represents a, a real uh, novel, useful invention, uh, that should be monetizable. You should be allowed to sue people for infringing it. What the real problem is that there's these lower quality patents in the system, and. Uh, these these non-practicing entities they use them and they use asymmetries in the legal system, which is the key point, to uh, to extract money from from other companies. Um, an, an example of an asymmetry in the legal system is that because these companies are non-practicing, they don't have any documents to produce during discovery. So so if if the trial goes to a discovery phase, it can cost a, a medium or large business millions of dollars to comply. <laughs> With uh, discovery costs, and and of course the non-practicing entity doesn't have any documents, so they have nothing to disclose. Um, so so it ends up uh, creating a very strong incentive for the company to settle. So Congress should deal with the patent troll problem. Yes. Uh, so there's a there's a, a number of proposals. Uh, one of them is to adopt a loser pays rules for cases of really just egregious. Um, spurious lawsuits. Another one is to require companies to disclose which patents they think are being violated at the time that they write their demand letters, uh, who owns them, who's the party at interest. Um, uh, there's just a number of proposals. There's not any one bill, but there's a, a, a lot of different uh, suggestions. Eli Dorado is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center. He's the lead author in this month's Cato Unbound, available at catounbound.org.